The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How y'all doing? Grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, wave your hand around and we'll make sure that you get one. Luke chapter 9 today. A um, couple of announcements for you. Um, our midweek service, don't forget this week we're going through a series and we're calling it the uh, Ecclesia series. Just understanding what it means to be the church. Um, topics uh, including and some already have been the church as a body, the church as a temple, the church as a family, as a priesthood, as an army, and as a kingdom. So make sure you jump in with us on Wednesday night um, at 630 um, also, uh, one other thing I'll just throw in, cause we only have one announcement. It's just weird. So I'll just throw it in. Um, cause usually we have like 60, but, um, men, men if you haven't signed up for man camp yet, and you're sort of thinking about doing it, you need to hustle because we're at like 450 men now that are going to man camp out there in, uh, the old Rajneeshi place out Washington family ranch. And, uh, Ray Ortland is coming to speak, which is an incredible, incredible gift to have Ray coming out from Nashville. And um, it's just going to be a great, great time. But from what I understand, registration is going to get cut off at 500. So if you haven't signed up yet, get on that. Stop by the information desk or the connect desk on your way out. Go on our website. Um, but make sure you get registered soon for that. I, I hope you guys, a bunch of you are able to make it. It'd be fun to hang with you guys. Um, this morning we're in Luke chapter 9. And we're going to be starting in verse 18. And... Uh, this week, just so I can stay unpredictable, I'm going to let you guys stay seated, and we're just going to open in prayer, and then dig into the Word. <clears throat> so Father, I do ask that your Spirit would be our teacher this morning. I pray, God, that as we open up your Word, you will show us, Lord, who you are, what you've done, and what is required of your people. I pray, God, your Spirit would be our instructor, and then your Spirit would empower us to actually do what you're calling us to do. I pray, God, against the enemy that would want to distract us or convince us that following you um, is, is somehow a difficulty or a burden or something like that. Lord, may we realize how much you love us. May we realize how you are always calling us towards joy. And may we seek you and your kingdom. So Lord, I pray, don't let this just be another Bible study. But may we truly this morning, Lord, communicate with you, our Father. And may your word produce fruit in our lives. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 today. This is a really simple message. This is, there's no flashiness. There's no, I mean, it's just a simple question that we're going to be thinking about today. Um, I'm even going short. You're welcome. Um, but this is a real, real, real real important question that everyone in here needs to wrestle with. Some on different levels than others, and some with different implications than others, but everyone in this room needs to be able to wrestle with this question. And the question is, who is Jesus Christ? Luke's been building towards this for a while now. Um, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is out doing ministry that pushes against the preconceived notions and practices of the religious leaders of that day, and it's bothersome to them, and you see them asking the question, who does this guy think he is? Then you get into Luke chapter 7. 
John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, is in prison and he's like, hey, um, so all this stuff that we've read about you said you're coming to set captives free and uh, I'm your forerunner, but I'm still in jail. And he asked the question, are you the one or should we wait for another? Like, who are you? Are you the guy? Because we thought you were the guy. And then it goes to Luke chapter 8. The disciples in the boat, on the lake, they think they're about to drown because the storm is so bad and they wake Jesus up and Jesus stands, he rebukes the water, he rebukes the wind and everything just instantly stops. The water instantly goes like glass and the disciples are freaked out. They thought they had an understanding of him up to that point. And then when they see this happen, they're terrified, it actually says, and they ask the question, who is this man that the wind and the water obey him? Last week, we looked at Herod, which we're going to revisit again this week, and his understandings or lack thereof about who Jesus is based on the teachings of John the Baptist, and then he'll later see Jesus himself. And all of this comes to a head with this particular uh, story that we're looking at this morning, the, the confession of Peter as Christ, and then it's going to find its ultimate pinnacle next week in the text that we look at as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ happens, where, if, if you will, the curtain is peeled back, and, and that's the, just the flesh, the skin that he has as a man is, is basically peeled back for a moment, you might say, and, and the reality of who he is um, just suddenly shines forth, and we realize who he is, and so Luke is building towards this all all along. And then after this, after this moment when this is who he is, now we see who he is, it's going to make this shift. And the emphasis going forward pretty much the rest of the way is going to be on, okay, in light of that, knowing who he is, what does it mean then to follow him? Like knowing what we think about him, what does discipleship look like? What does he require of us? What is he doing and how does that affect us? And that's going to happen as he begins teaching his disciples much more intentionally as he makes his way towards Jerusalem and eventually to the cross of Jesus Christ. So this is the text that we're in this week. And we're going to back up and start with Herod's thoughts again um, from last week. Because actually in this text, it says in verse 18... Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, if you were here last week, that should resonate a little bit because it's really similar to something that we saw Herod kind of talking about the same sort of deal. So here's the backstory on what's going on. Jesus is doing ministry in the area of Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee, just a massive, massive lake there that's an agrarian farming and fishing society. And there's small villages all around the lake scattered there. Um, and the villages aren't very big. I mean, if it's a big village, it's 100 people. And yet, as scattered and spread out as these villages are, and as small as they are in this area called Galilee, Jesus is drawing crowds by the thousands. In fact, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, which is a badly named parable because it's really more like the feeding of the up to 20 or more thousand. So think about that. Villages of 100, but drawing a crowd of 20,000 people. All these people are coming from everywhere and they're coming to see, man, uh, hey, did you guys hear about this Jesus guy? Man, I was there and there was a blind guy and he healed him and suddenly the guy could see. And I tested him. I did the finger thing and he nailed it every single time. It was amazing. And people are like, really? They're like, yeah, he's going to be there tomorrow. We should go check that out. Yeah, I want to see that. And so then some more people go. 
And then word starts to spread some more. Man, I was there last week, and there was this kid that was possessed, and he was rolling around on the ground, and we were just like, what is going on with this guy? And then Jesus just talked to him, and he was like, he was the best behaved kid I've ever seen after that. It was like crazy. And then word's getting out about food. All of these different things are going on. And so word is spreading all over the place. And as we saw last week, just to revisit it for our sake of our story here in John 9, verse 7, it tells us that Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Because it was said by, by some that John had raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. By others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So as you can see, the position of Herod, if you will, the curiosity about Jesus, the wondering about who he is and how that's handled, that's not just Herod. This is kind of spreading throughout the area. The masses of people don't really know who he is. And there's different ideas. Oh, he's a good teacher. He's this, he's this, he's the healer. He's, there's all these different ideas, but no one's really wrestled with and come to the reality of the conclusion of who Jesus is. And so we have this kind of going on. Now, Herod, I, I want to show you guys something that we get some extra news in Mark chapter 6 that tells us something about Herod and John the Baptist, the one who he had had beheaded. Now, remember, if you will, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so he would go around preaching about Jesus and preaching about the kingdom of God. But Herod was a really disgusting dude. And he was in a relationship, an incestuous relationship. And John the Baptist knew it. And so John the Baptist begins preaching repentance and talking about Herod in this relationship and he's calling Herod to repent. And Herod's getting upset, and Herod's woman's getting uh, really, really upset, and it just becomes this really gnarly situation. And in the end, through this disgusting chain of events, Herod ends up having John the Baptist put to death. But it's wrong to think that Herod all along was just a straight-up enemy of John the Baptist, and it finally just boiled to a point he finally got him. That's actually not true. Because Mark chapter 6 says this. Look at this, verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So I want you to think about that for just a minute. That means something about what John the Baptist taught scratched an itch for Herod. He liked it. He liked to talk about the kingdom. He liked to talk about Jesus. Maybe it was some of his guilt and this teaching about repentance he knew that he needed. Maybe it scratched an intellectual itch for him. Maybe it was just postulating and thinking down the road. Maybe he was tired of being under the thumb of Rome himself and he was thinking about this whole Messiah, how that's going to work out. But whatever the case may be, Herod liked it. Herod liked the teaching, nodded his head, was happily hearing it again until it started to push against something that he valued more. So once there was something in his life that you might say was a greater God to him, you might say, well, this had to go. So it was time to kind of deal with that. But this is the case, and this is the case with so many people, even in the church. There's so many people that are fine with Jesus. Oh, he's great. Love Jesus. Love talking about Jesus. Love the sermons. Not in agreement sometimes. Agree. I hear all of this kind of stuff, but then 
can find a way to compartmentalize this over into something where it doesn't have the same impact or maybe maybe Jesus is great until it gets to a point where he's telling me something that I don't really want to do or he's calling me to do something about something that I value a little too much and then I have to make a decision and so I'm going to choose these things over him or whatever the case so it's time that he has to go. Let me just warn you if there's anyone in this room that is in that category you've got to understand how dangerous this position is. This is a dangerous position. Because if you, if you were to fast forward, you know, it says that Herod sought to see Jesus. He wanted to see him. He was intrigued. Well, Herod does get to see Jesus, if you guys know the story. Comes up in Luke chapter 23, which at this rate we'll get to sometime around 2025, 2026, something like that. So plenty of time for me to tell you now. You'll forget and then it'll sound new when we get there. But in Luke 23, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. And Herod is the king, if you will, the tetrarch of Galilee. And Pilate, not knowing what to do with Jesus, because all the accusations that had come against him as he's analyzing Jesus, he's like, man, the guy's innocent. There's nothing wrong. So it's, it's kind of like, well, let this guy handle it. And so look what Luke 23, verse 6 says. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man, speaking of Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard of him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, this is Jesus, but he made no answer. Think about that. Herod's like, you're sending Jesus to me? Oh, that's awesome. I have been dying to see this guy. Bring him in. I have heard about him. John the Baptist used to talk to me about him. I used to hear all the stories about him. He had heard all of these things. Those of you that know your Bible, what is it the scriptures tell us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word's been coming to him and he's hearing it. He's receiving it, but kind of. And now Jesus is there. And he's heard all of this, but now he wants to see something. He's like, you know what? Jesus will come in here, and if he'll do like a special miracle for me, hmm, that'll be something. That'll give me something to think about. And so Jesus comes before him, and he's questioning, do this. Can you do this? Can you do this? And Jesus never answered. Didn't say a word to him. Why? Herod's had his chance. He has heard over and over. He's made his choices of the gods that he really wants to worship and serve. He's looking at Jesus as an entertainer here. And of course, Jesus, yes, is doing this intentionally as he came to die as well. But he answered other questions in different places. He doesn't answer Herod because at a certain point, Herod had already had his chance and nothing new was going to be offered to him. Guys, if you're in that place where you've heard and heard and heard not really done anything with it yet who is Jesus I've heard I've heard the gospel I've heard these things I've heard the scripture I grew up in the church let me warn you the more you say no the more you put off oh I'll get to it later right now work's busy right now it's family things right now but I'll follow Jesus I'll get to some of that I mean I, I kind of there's just a lot going on let me warn you Every time you say no, it just gets easier and easier and easier. And eventually you can end up in a place where the Spirit of God is not messing with you anymore. Like where he's done striving. 
where you have seared yourself, you have completely um, cut yourself off to all of these things. Your heart has become hardened. That's why Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 3, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Like, this is something we got to wrestle with today. We're going to wrestle with some hard stuff today. You guys are like, dang, man. Jeff was preaching like all excited last week, doing like that whole following threads through scripture. He was much happier. Why is he preaching so grumpy today? Well, number one, it's finals week, so back off me. Number two, (laughs) number two, this is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And I find no guilt or shame in leaving a heavy question on you guys to chew on. It might be the most, it might be the biggest example of grace anyone will show you all week to challenge you to think about who Jesus Christ is because there's nothing more important in your life. This is a big deal. Don't keep putting it off. Don't be the guy that has room for business, room for relationships, room for hobbies, room for golf, room for sports, room for all of these other things. And Jesus is like 10th on the list if you can squeeze it in. I tell you, it'll be no time at all where Jesus isn't on the list. Don't do this. Because it's, it's such a mistake to think that we're going to get to it eventually. That's such a bad way of thinking. It's, it's, with all due respect, it's foolishness to think that way. Because this assumption that we always have, that there's more time, we've got time, we'll get to it later. It's, it's not true. It's not true. Some of you may not even know this, but our dear brother Larry, Larry Rich. I always say this wrong. I'm sorry, Stephanie. I'm going to mess it around. Larry Rishavd has is, is been a part of our church for a really, really long time. If you guys that know him, just a sweetheart of a man. Just last week, I'll, I'll, we'll be doing his memorial service coming up Wednesday at 1.30 because just last week, out of the blue, he had a heart attack. And, and Larry, like, don't feel sorry for him. He's with Jesus right now, but he is gone. And I assure you that Larry wasn't planning on having a heart attack when that happened. Like that wasn't on the schedule. Now the beauty is, Larry was ready. He didn't need to pack his bags. He was ready to go. But maybe some of you aren't. And maybe this is just one of those times where you need to hear what preachers have been saying forever. This might be your, you have no guarantee that you will ever hear another gospel presentation again after today. So what are you going to do with it? You don't have that guarantee And don't let it be too late. Don't let it be too late. Make sure you're kicking it with Larry one day. But we're going to talk about that some more. So Jesus says to the disciples, Hey guys, all these crowds, what are they saying about me? Who do they say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're some of the other prophets that's risen, which is super interesting. Consider who's going to show up in next week's story. But this is what's going on. And so then Jesus turns to his disciples. So church people, listen up, because it's really easy to think that that who is Jesus question is the question for the people that don't know Jesus yet to chew on. We already have that figured out, and so we're good. These guys are with Jesus all the time. He turns away from the crowds to his closest followers and says, who do you say that I am? So I don't, I don't care how long you have been going to church or being a Christian or any of that kind of stuff. Let me ask you, who is Jesus Christ to you? 
And now I know, especially if you grew up in the church or you've been in church for a long time, I know you know the answers to that. Like the church answers you're supposed to give. I know that. So just go ahead in your mind and say him, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He is Lord. That's what you're going to say. But let me ask it then this way. How much do you actually believe that though? Like if it suddenly became illegal under penalty of death, to become a Christian, which is not that much of a stretch considering that that's been the case for Christianity in lots of places in history. Like gun to your head, who is Jesus Christ? Deny him or die. Like, do you really believe it that much that you would lay your life down for him? Now again, the uh, church bravado kicks in, doesn't it? Yes, I would die for Jesus. Are you sure? Because be careful. Because Peter, who's making this confession in verse 20, who says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. He's the same guy who later Jesus is saying, all of you guys are going to leave. And what does Peter say? Not me. I will die. Everybody else can leave. I will die for you. Peter, Peter, Peter. He's in the Bible because he's just like all of us. Like we would all say that. Because that's what you get trained to do if you go to church long enough. But I'm asking you, because it ain't, it ain't the Sunday school teacher or the pastor or the person sitting next to you that you have to impress with your answer to that question. I'm asking you to wrestle within your own heart. Do you really believe? Because there's a ton of people that would say they believe that and that they would die if that's what it actually came to, but who won't die in even little bits to give Jesus room for their life in other areas while they're still alive. So what makes you think putting a gun to your head is actually gonna make that better? I think it might push you the other way. Who is Jesus? Like, who is he to you? No Sunday school answer, no theology. You're not gonna get into heaven based on your knowledge of theology. Who is Jesus to you? This is a huge question because all these things that are going to follow from this are super hard. Just going to tell you, again, I'm preaching grumpy today, I know, but it, this is super hard stuff. And the answer to who is Jesus is, is the key to all of it. Because if, if he's your Lord and Savior, then this other stuff not only just plain makes sense, but it's even doable. But if he's not, if he's just, you know, you fit him in when you can, you like some of the teachings, not really Lord or any of that kind of stuff, then honestly, like, I want you to stay here because I want you to learn and I want you to grow, but like, don't even bother. Like, it wouldn't make sense to try to do some of these kind of things if he, if you don't believe he is who he says he is. There's better things to do with your time. Die to self if you don't believe in Jesus. Why? So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Verse 21, so Peter responds, you are the Christ of God. In verse 21, Jesus, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this is awesome that this is here because I want you to follow the trajectory that Luke is throwing in right here. This is awesome. Who is Jesus? You are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Lord. And he could have gone straight from there, 
because of the authority that he has as Christ, into the mandates about discipleship that we're going to get to in a minute, about follow me, you need to take up your cross, you need to do all these things. That's, he could have totally done that and would have been completely justified within his authority because he's king, amen? By the way, if you're still wrestling with that, just trust me, wrestle some because he's king and you need to come to that conclusion, amen? So he could have said, who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the Christ, the son of God. Peter, you're right. Now, therefore, I want you guys to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. He could have totally done that. And he would have been justified. Amen? But it's not what he does. What does he do? He goes, okay, I am. But I don't want you to run with that yet, guys, because you don't have the full information. Like, if you just go running around proclaiming king, you're going to force conflict that doesn't need to be forced yet. You're going to force tension that isn't there yet because you don't understand that, yes, I am Lord, but the most important, or the every bit as important part of my identity as Lord is what I came to do, and I came to die for you. Like, he roots everything, not just in his authority, like some sort of dictator from afar who points a finger and tells us to jump, but he goes, no, 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 I am the king, and I came to die for you, Peter. Peter, don't go running around out there just going ahead and declaring the Messiah king who's come part yet because here's what you don't understand, Peter. All that crowd that they're still confused about me, they need me. And so do you. And you don't even realize how bad yet, but you will. And so I came for this reason. I'll come in glory soon. He's gonna say that in this very passage. But this is what I mean. This is a gospel centrality to what's happening because coming up now comes the hard stuff, right? It's the call to follow him, and it's what it really looks like, the part that most people haven't been told in a lot of American Christianity. They just get told that if you follow Jesus, your life's going to get better. That is not what Jesus teaches, not even slightly. But the call to, to, to obedience to Christ is rooted in these two things. You can never forget this, church. His identity and his purpose. He is the king, and he is our savior who came to die. Like that's what he's always doing. God is not this dictator forcing us out of his authority, though he has the authority to do so as creator. He wants, God doesn't just want obedience. He wants worship and love and relationship. So he doesn't just go, that's right, I'm Lord, therefore do this. He goes, I am Lord, and I have come to lay my life down for you. I'm going to die for your sins, Peter. On the third day, I'm going to rise again so that you might have eternal life. He, it's, this is the gospel. He's like, I don't want you just running with authority. I want you to understand the gospel. So church, before we go any further with any of this stuff, the question is, who is Jesus? And do you understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, you should stop here and don't read any further until you come to some conclusions there. Because the call to discipleship is birthed out of an understanding of who God is and the reality of the grace and mercy and sacrifice that he's done on our behalf. Amen, church? B obedience comes after that because he wants worship. He wants worship. He wants genuine relationship and love that comes out of a response to how good our Lord and Savior is. The gospel has to come first. Amen? And so it's right here. It's right here. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he tells him, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now here's the hard part. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So this is discipleship. When we refer to discipleship, we touched on this last week, this is a huge emphasis right now at Heritage amongst uh, the leadership here at Heritage. This idea of, um, are we making disciples? Are we truly and genuinely following Christ in the way that he's called us to do? Um, because honestly, it can be really easy because you've got growing numbers and you've got all this different stuff going on to convince yourself that you're actually killing it as a church. Um, but I love what one of our Acts 29 brothers, Steve Timmis, says. He says there's a lot of people who convince themselves into believing that they're actually doing ministry and really what they're doing is just hanging out with their buddies. And that we do not want to be the case here. So even as we're coming up to our 10-year anniversary, we're constantly thinking about, okay, if the next 10 years looked exactly like the last 10 years, are we being faithful to the call of Jesus Christ? Are we in danger of slipping into areas that God never called us to do? Like thinking about this idea of discipleship, and hopefully it's going to be a term that you guys are going to hear over and over and over and over. So the term disciple refers properly to the 12 disciples who are following Jesus here, but it refers in a bigger sense to all followers of Jesus Christ. The disciples themselves were given the great commission by Jesus to go into all the nations and to make what? Disciples. In other words, to multiply, to make more of themselves. So if you are here and you have become a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. You're a result of that multiplication ministry that Jesus kicked off in Matthew chapter 20. And so you're the, the fruit of the fact that some people were faithful to follow Jesus and to share the gospel. And for that, we should say amen, right? Amen. We're blessed by that. But we are called to be disciples who then go and make more disciples. So there's something to it. It's not just a, I'm saved, I got my badge, and now I'm just going to kick it till Jesus comes back. There's this idea of discipleship, of following him. And so these passages right here are the ones that don't get quite the publicity. They're not quite as fun because they come off as hard. But some of the understanding is not quite as bad as maybe we've given it uh, uh, a reputation for. So, for example, let's look at what some of these things mean when he's describing what it looks like to follow him. He said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So self-denial is a mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the marks that would denote you as such is self-denial. Um, but it probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, because for a lot of us, we think of self-denial in, in sort of an asceticism kind of way. Like, okay, that means if I'm a, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, um, I live for heaven and not this world. So I need to deny myself of any of the pleasures. It's sort of a monastic kind of approach to life. Like someone comes up to you like with some, uh, I don't know, some, some bacon cheeseburger pizza or something like that. And you're like, oh, this pizza is so good. You got to have it. And you're like, no, 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 no. Self-denial. I don't want to enjoy. I'm, this is for Jesus. I'm going to say no to pizza. Well, Maybe you should say no to pizza for other reasons, but it's not a Jesus thing. Like following Jesus does not mean that we now deny anything that we might enjoy. We're going to say no to everything and starve ourselves. That's not what that means at all. And it, that's not a, at all what it looks like the way Jesus lived. So what, it, does it, what does it mean? Well, it's denial of self and self in that context is talking about actual identity. And so here's what he's saying. 
Someone who understands that Jesus is Lord, knows the gospel and has been saved, and now you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a disciple. It means you are now willing to die and deny all of that identity stuff that came with who you were. And now you're taking on a new identity. Your identity is in Christ, not in self anymore. So you're no longer part of the kingdom of you that lives for you and your kingdom and your pleasures and what makes you happy and all of that kind of stuff. That stuff has now been denied. Now your life is in Christ and you're living for a new kingdom as an adopted son of God. It's a much different thing. I mean, in a lot of places, Christians have this, this reputation of being miserable and they sort of do that to themselves because there's this thought like that Christians can't have a good time and enjoy life. No, we should enjoy life more than anyone on earth. I love what Jeff Vanderstelt, who wrote this book called Gospel Fluency, you want a good book, man, get that book. But he talks about like in his neighborhood, in his missional community, when he's reaching out to people there, they throw, they have an actual budget that they put together to throw parties. I don't mean frat parties, but they throw parties. And he's like, people will come and they're just like, you guys throw the best parties. And he's like, because we have the most joy. And then they talk about, as people are coming in, joy in Christ and all of these kinds of things. That's, self-denial doesn't mean we're miserable. Self-denial means we're not about us anymore. We're about him. He, our identity is in Christ now. We are sons of God. It's a willingness to accept that identity. So it's not quite as bad. Look at the next one, take up your cross. A uh, little, little heavier, right? A little heavier. Die to self, take up your cross. So take up your cross, meaning you're going to take the cross beam that would then you would march, as we know that Jesus did, up to the site of crucifixion. Um, it's not just like a die to self kind of thing, but it's like using the term. It, it's not like um, uh, th that method of execution is reserved for murderers and thieves and criminals. So it, you've heard the analogy before, it's like take up your electric chair or take up your gas chamber or take up your guillotine or whatever it is. A type of, of death that is reserved for those who deserve to die. And he's saying th th that's the way that you're to live. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't sound like happy in Christ as identity. What does that mean? It's still, it's tied to the same thing. Deny self, take up your cross. It's this, it's this way of living that says I'm dead to those things. I will live amidst a world that is opposed to Jesus, that is opposed to the kingdom of God. I will live as if I'm dead to those things. I don't need to worship those things. It's how Paul talks about the old man. I don't need to chase all of these other things. I'm dead to that stuff. I now live with Christ. It's, it's part of the same thing, this new identity. And then there's the idea of faithfulness, because look what he says here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How often? Daily. Why does he throw daily in there? Because that stuff's hard, amen? Like, it's hard. I mean, I, it's, it's super hard. And so how many times do we even need the reminder, even on a daily basis? Okay, who am I? What do I live for? What am I dead to? This is the importance even of, of devotions and being in the word in the morning and being in prayer so that every single day we can reorient ourselves around this new identity, this new kingdom, and this God that we serve that trumps all other gods. 
that we can say, I don't, I don't have to live for the God of money. I don't have to live for the God of prestige. And man, I've drifted. I haven't spent time with Jesus in a while. And, and so now um, it's a new day. I need to start over. I can trust that his mercies are new, but I'm reorienting around. You have to do that daily. If you do that monthly, you're going to follow Jesus for like a few hours. It's a day. It's a, it's faithfulness is a little bit of a grind. There is joy in following Jesus, but we are to pursue righteousness, the scriptures tell us. We're to pursue holiness. This belief that like once we get saved, the Holy Spirit does all the work and we don't do anything anymore is not true. We're called to pursue righteousness, but it's, it's not pursuing righteousness so that we get this identity. That's the old self that's died. Our identity is now rooted in the faithfulness of Christ. And so even on the days that we fail, it's not like we lost status because it was all about Jesus in the first place, which then reorients us again and gets us heading back towards him. Amen. And this is also why the last thing is a disciple. And I mean, it sounds a little bit simplistic, but it is here and it is true. The other mark of a disciple is you actually follow Jesus. But, but here, here's the implications I want you to chew on with that. Um, the two things are, number one, you, you, if you're following him, that means you're, you're with him. Amen? You guys understand? I know that seems like 101, but you understand that, right? So, so that's what I'm getting at like on a daily basis. Sometimes on an hourly basis. Or as Paul would even say, praying without ceasing. Like we spend time with Jesus. Jesus is not a distant ruler that lived here at one part and now his presence is gone. He's gone from us. He's not around and we just, we need to follow him. And then when he comes back, he'll check our record. Like he, he is, he calls us to abide in him. He says, if we're not connected with him, we can do nothing. And so a disciple of Jesus spends time with Jesus daily. And another thing is a disciple of Jesus, when I say follows Jesus, it means you, you, you follow him. It means you're doing what he did. You're following in his example. You're following in his work. And we covered this in depth last week, but it bears repeating. What Jesus did and what he calls us to do is a twofold ministry. It is proclamation of the kingdom of God and the gospel, and it is healing. And I don't mean necessarily, though the Holy Spirit can absolutely choose to work through you, but I don't mean that we all have to set up ministries of healing. What I mean is, is that ambassadors for the kingdom of God, we go into a place and we bring healing in places where there's brokenness. So think about it, even the idea of being an ambassador. You live in a country that is not your own. There are no misgivings for you about who your loyalties lie to, who your citizenship is. You know who you're from. You represent that place. But at the same time, a good ambassador also has a heart for the place that they've been, been assigned to as well, right? Because your whole job is about representing one and the other and, and building relations there and all those sorts of things. That's what the church is to do as well. We live in denial of that old identity, we live dead to the way the world lives. We live dead to having to strive for affection, to strive for attention. We don't have to live for prestige. We don't have to live to build our name. We don't have to live enslaved to passions. We don't have to live to any of those kind of things because our total fulfillment and joy is in Jesus Christ. And he has done all of those things. If Jesus would die for me, the God of creation says he loves Jeff. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I have him. And so that's where my identity lies. At the same time, though, I'm living here in such a place that then brings light to the hurt and broken here because I have a heart for the people that are around here. And that's Jesus. 
How many times have we seen the crowds would come even when he's tired and it would talk about how he had compassion for them? Like he would see their brokenness and it moved him. That's what we're called to do as well. So as disciples of Jesus Christ, man, it is so much emphasis in, in so many areas of Christianity was so focused on the initial decision. Pray the prayer, come forward at the crusade, whatever the thing may be. And so little emphasis has been on what it looks like afterwards. And we need to emphasize this, church. Discipleship and faithfulness and abiding in Christ and striving and about bringing mission to the lost that's out there. Church, this is a really, really, it's the only reason we're here is to do these things. And until the day that the Lord should return or we get to go follow our brother Larry and be with him in glory forever, until that day, this is what God has called his church to be. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm just gonna be straight up honest with you again. I'm grumpy preaching today, you might think, but I'm just telling you, I am super worried about this mindset in the church, including our church. I am super worried that that same kind of mentality exists all over the place because, I mean, look at it this way. If we really look at that description, all of these, like what it means to follow Jesus, that kind of disciple, just be real honest with yourself for just a second. How many people do you know that are doing that? Not many, right? Which is why Jesus said, the road is narrow. Few take it. There's easier roads. And lots of people take those. But this road's narrow. Few people take it. I will say this, the end of the road is pretty awesome. When you take that last curve, you're going to be stunned at what you see. But the road's narrow, and not many people take it. And what I'm worried about, and one of the things that we as a leadership and a staff are talking about a lot, is we're really worried that within the church and within Christendom, there's too many people that are trying to craft a third road as if one existed. I'll follow Jesus. I just don't want to follow him everywhere. So, like, if, if he's going over here, I'll go that way. Oh, but I don't want to go there, so I'll... Well, we'll go around, we'll take the bypass, and then we'll go over here, and I'll, what you're doing, whether you intend to and whether you realize it or not, is called idolatry. Because number one, you're crafting the Savior that you want to follow who is different than the Savior that's described in Scripture. And number two, you're doing it because there's other things that you're valuing more than Jesus in those moments. So I, I, I won't tell my coworker about Jesus because I'm worried what he's going to say to me. Okay, but own that. That's pride. That's you loving yourself more than those that Jesus is giving his life for. That's just what it is. Or, man, I, I want to follow Jesus, and I, I love going to church, but, man, once the weather changes <laughs> and golf season kicks in, you know, I mean, I got to take advantage of the sunshine. Okay, you love golf more than Jesus. I mean, at least you know what your idol is. But we need to know those things. We need to allow the word of God to address those things. And if we, don't even, if we don't even call them what they are, then how do we ever get them rooted out in the first place? And so think of this. Remember Paul? He comes to Athens and he's preaching. And he says to the people in Athens, he goes, I can tell that you're a religious crowd because you have idols everywhere. You even have this one, like, I'm, this is crazy, guys. Good job, you're covering your bases because you've got an idol that says, to the unknown God, just in case you missed one. That's pretty smart. And then he goes, but I got some good news. 
I know the unknown God that you're not aware of. He created everything. He is Lord of everything. He holds everything together. And yet he also became flesh and lived and died for your sins. And he calls people to repentance and all these things. Now, how did that go? Well, there were a couple of people that followed. It's, it's known, most, uh, uh, most people recognize that as the lowest spot, the least effective ministry that Paul ever had was in that place. Why? Well, in that area especially, and through Roman citizenship in general, it was polytheistic. You had lots of different gods. And so some of those places would have been fine with things just like Herod. Oh, Jesus? I like Jesus. We'll fit him right into the bookshelf between Zeus and between this one and between this one. And so I'll just work Jesus into these little niches in my life as well as all the other gods that I have. And why was Rome so upset with Christians? I mean, if they're a polytheistic society, why couldn't they just be like, oh, okay, well, you got Jesus too. Awesome. He's great. We got lots of them. Because central to the Christian claim was that you cannot serve two masters. And Rome was saying, Jesus, fine, throw him in with the rest, whatever. And Christianity at that time was saying, no. There is no, there is no one but Jesus Christ. Caesar is not a God. Jesus is, and Jesus demands our allegiance. Jesus demands our lives. And they were even renouncing the idea of Roman citizenship, which was everything in that day, and saying they were citizens of a new kingdom, an ambassador with a new outpost, which is almost like declaring to them, hey, we invaded and we took a little spot and we're looking to grow. And Rome was like, nope. And I just worry how many times we as Christians throughout history are falling though into that same mindset that says, I'll work Jesus in here and I'll work Jesus in here and I'll get to some of these other things down here when life gets a little bit different. But right now I got this going on and I got this business thing coming and my kids are here and I got, and, and all these, and, and sometimes things that are good things, but they get elevated above Jesus and that's idolatry. And it prevents us from following Christ. And then we look at Jesus. And I'll just, I'll speak for me. You guys can apply it if you want, but I'm so glad Jesus held back nothing for me because I needed every ounce of grace he had to pour out. And how many of you, just be honest, like how many of you who are married would be completely content to, I don't know, like a partial commitment from your spouse? Just partially committed, here and there, as long as it works for them, committed, right? Business owners, how many of you would keep an employee that was partially committed to your company as long as things worked within his schedule? None of you, right? Uh, sports fans, can you imagine a quarterback who loses a game? He's behind the microphone at the end of the game, and they're like, man, that was really rough out there. Um, how did that go? You, it looked like you were giving it your all. And he goes, oh, well, no, are you kidding me? It's like 85 degrees. It's Miami in the summer. Of course not. I gave it like 80%. 77, if I'm being honest. Like, that guy would get raked over the coals. No one would keep that, right? So, guys, I want you to wrestle with this. Why, Jeff, why? For goodness sakes, are you pounding us with this? Look at this text, guys. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. It's the scariest passage in the entire Bible, as far as I'm concerned. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That is terrifying. And as pastor of a church, to know that even in this room there are people that have not given their lives to Christ and have no desire to really follow him right now. And I think about this. I think about that text. And I think about the times that you've come to church and you've sang the songs and you've given it the tithe and you've done all the little different religious things when it fit into with all the other gods that you serve. And then on that day, you're gonna stand before Jesus Christ himself and he's gonna come in glory as this text says. And you're gonna be there and he's going to go, who are you? And you're going to say, no, wait, wait. I went to church. Look, there's Jeff on the other side. Hey, Jeff, tell him I was at church. I was there. And he's going, think about this, guys. He's going to send you away. He's going to send you away. That's terrifying. So I have no shame or misgivings about saying to you this morning, you have a heavy question that every single person in this room has got to wrestle with. Who is Jesus Christ? And like, do you really believe the answer that you're given? Because it affects everything. And if he is Lord, then he deserves this kind of following. Amen? And if he is Savior, then he deserves this kind of following. And if he's both, man, following a God like that is not a burden. That is worship. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or literally translates, which is your rational worship. In other words, what he's saying right here, Knowing all the things that we know about God, which he has just declared in Romans 1 through 11 about his mercy and his majesty and his sacrifice and how he came for us when we weren't even looking for him, how he died for us while we were yet sinners, knowing all of these things, it just makes sense that you would follow him like this. It's rational. But if that's not who he is to you, I can save you a ton of time. But I will plead with you because he's coming back. He's coming back. And when he comes back, it's not going to be any more of the, okay, shh, Peter, don't tell anybody yet. No one's going to need to announce that. We're going to see it. And even if you don't live until that point, then that's the point too. You have no guarantee that you will ever hear the gospel said again. This could be the very last time you'll ever hear it. So go do something with that. Who is Jesus? And my prayer is that the Spirit of God will do in you what he's done with Peter, that the Spirit will reveal himself to you and cause you to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And then that by the Spirit of God in you, we might follow him in spirit and in truth. Amen, church? So bow your heads, please.
The last verse of our text is a great setup for the next passage. It says, Jesus told them, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And it's gonna happen like right away. This kingdom is real. Our savior is real. Jesus is alive. He is risen and he is coming back. So please wrestle with this. Whether you've been going to church your whole life or this is your first time, who is Jesus? What do you know about him? What do you understand about him? And how is that affecting you? It's a big deal. Father, may you move in this place. May your spirit, Lord, give us understanding of who you are. May we see you for who you are. And I pray, God, right now, for those that have not given their lives to you, that there would be a stirring right now. I pray against, Lord, that, that spirit that says, I'll just wait or, or get it later. Lord, please, I pray, do not let anyone's heart be hardened. May you soften hearts, write your will upon him, give them that heart of flesh, not of stone. May you save. And for those of us, Lord, who are Christians, no matter how long it's been, may this reminder of who you are and of the mercy that you've extended to us cause us to do some thinking too. May we think about who you are in our life and how you play into everything from our work, our play, our finances, our thoughts, our neighborhoods, our hobbies, everything. Father, will you lead us and make disciples and change us and grow us more and more and more into your image. And I beg of you, Lord, may it never be said of anyone in this church, Lord, that we would find ourselves on the end of your words that say, depart from me for I never knew you. Help us, Lord, to know you and give us a hunger to know you more, I beg you, Lord. Save us, Lord. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, listen, if you... If, you've, if you're still wrestling with that question, if you've never made that decision, please come talk to us. Let us just pray with you, see you. There'll be some elders down front here on both sides and some pastors. I'll be down here. This is a really big deal. And we, this is not preaching at you. This is pleading with you. Come to Jesus. And the rest of us, man, go wrestle with this. Are, are we polytheistic or do we follow one king? Like, wrestle with these things and be praying for us as a church um, for the next 10 years of our existence. Like, how do we do this better? How do we follow better? How do we become more faithful? How do we continue to pursue holiness? It's a big, big, big deal. Amen? I love you guys. God bless. Have a great, great, great week.